We're beginning a new sermon series this morning in the book of Romans. And this will occupy us for most of the the rest of this year, all being well. Uh, And as we journey through this book, we go with Paul as he writes uh, from Corinth, where he's based, to the church in Rome, to the believers in Rome that he is yet to go and meet as he tries to encourage them that with Christ at the very center of who they are, they are able to live transformed lives, that regardless of where they've come from, what their background is, their level of education, their wealth or poverty or status, Christ changes everything and unites them together as one family for the glory of God. And so as we begin this morning, we're going to read from chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. So let's read together from Romans chapter 1. There we read, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who has descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord and we give thanks to him for it this morning. Over this past week, you'll have seen, no doubt, in the news that there has been a a big change in the United States. We've had uh, President Donald Trump been leaving the White House at the end of his four-year term in office, and Joe Biden has begun his time in office as the new president, the 46th, I think, president of the United States. And at a time like that, you find very often much reflecting in the media Uh, both online, TV, and and the press, about the character of the two individuals, how they compare, how they contrast, what that's meant for the four years that's gone past, and what that will mean for the four years to come, if we can make any any, any assumptions about the four years that are to come. And as we um, ask those questions and look at the characters of these men, we make all sorts of assumptions about them, about what kind of person they are and what kind of president they have been or will be. And as Paul comes to begin this letter to the Roman church around about AD 57, something like that, writing from Corinth to a group of believers he's desperate to come and visit, he begins the whole thing, this huge long letter that details so much of his theology, of what he believes, about what he thinks the believers in Rome should believe, about God and therefore do, he he begins the whole thing with uh, details about himself. He lays out in these opening seven verses uh, information about what is central to who he is as a Christian and what he thinks should be central to the believers in Rome as Christians, which will dictate everything they do and say and think. Now, Romans is a big letter, and there's an awful lot that we could dig out of it if we wanted to do a really deep dive on it. We could go down the Martin Lloyd-Jones route. 
if you want, and spend 13 years and 372 sermons uh, on the book, we're not going to. We're going to spend most of our time this year on it, seeing to, uh, seeking to, to dig out as much as we can, but keep in focus that the whole flow of the letter, it's written as one letter to a church that Paul doesn't know, although he knows some of the believers. Uh, but as we go through it, everything will be grounded on what Paul lays out in these uh, opening seven verses. They form the foundation to everything, which is amazing when you think about how short it is. It's just seven verses. And he doesn't detail all that much, but what he says is absolutely crucial. And it's going to be crucial to each one of us if we're going to understand our Christian lives uh, rightly and live them in a manner that is fitting for men and women who are going to call themselves Christians. And so as we come to these uh, opening seven verses, we find uh, Paul addressing one thing. He says in verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. This is what Christians are. It's those who are loved by God and called by Him to be His holy people, His people set apart from the rest of the world to live exclusively for Him. And Paul goes on to lay out what it is to be loved by God because the believers then, as we do today, have all sorts of ideas about what you mean when you say you're loved by God and are set apart for Him. We have all sorts of things that we carry over from our relationships with our parents, our children, our friends, our wider family, our church, whatever it might be. We think we have it nailed down what love means. But Paul doesn't want to take any chances, especially in the ancient world where there are so many religions with so many different views of what it is to live with your God and serve Him. Just, I suppose, as we find today. We have all the world religions and we have uh, secular atheism and humanism and all sorts of things that detail what it is to live as a human being and to love. And so before we make any assumptions about anything, it is right for us to hear what Paul says God's love actually means and what that will mean for us as we seek to live in light of it. In this passage, he begins in verse 1 and 2 by laying out for us that God's love is characterized, is embodied, is expressed in Jesus. He says, Paul, a servant, he really says a slave, someone who is owned completely by Christ Jesus. And he's going to go on to say that Jesus is one who has um, been sent to, to save and transform, to, um, to call out of the world those who God loves. Everything hinges upon Jesus. And why Paul says that is clear, um, as we'll work out through the rest of the book of Romans, but we find in the rest of Scripture that in the beginning mankind uh, was made perfect and yet rebelled against God. That's what sin really means. It means rebellion against God, going any other way but the way God would have us go. And because of that rebellion against God that so characterizes the human race in Adam and Eve, our first parents who rebelled against God, we find that, that everything in our lives is corrupted by sin. And so we live for ourselves. We focus on the things that we want to do that satisfy and fulfill us. We take God out of 
center place in our lives and we put ourselves there. And so we live constantly seeking to do what I want to do, not ask first, what does God want me to do that would please Him and honor Him and glorify Him? And so to address this problem of sin that that leads ultimately to death, as God said to Adam and Eve, if you live this way, you think you're going to live a full and joy-filled life, but actually I am the source of life. And if you live in a different direction to the one I want you to live in, it can only lead to death. And to address that problem of of death, the, the fact that our lives are going to kill us if we live them that way, we find we need help. We can't do it ourselves. We've got to that point in January by now where most of your New Year's resolutions, if you made any, have already been broken. The commitment to diet and exercise have gone out the window. You've maybe got yourself into a Bible reading plan. That's probably died a death at some point over the last week or so, or will do if we get into February. And um, We constantly strive to do well, to do better, but we constantly fail. We just can't help ourselves. We want to do what makes us feel good. That's all we care about is feeling good. And we'll sacrifice anything to that end. And so we find we can't make ourselves be the kind of people God wants us to be that are so focused and devoted to Him that we'll reject even our own comfort if necessary. And so God sends Jesus to come and be our Savior. He does that by calling us and captivating us. to He dies for our sins, He pays the price for them, and He gives us a new life, one focused and dedicated to God. And This life is a life of servanthood to God, one completely given over to Him, as Paul says in verse 1. Paul, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. He says he's called to be an apostle. That is, Jesus has set him apart with a mission, a specific task. He's sent, that's what apostle means, to be sent Uh, to to proclaim the gospel of God, he says at the end of verse 1. And really, if you were to force me to give you a theme for the whole book of Romans, then that's the best I think I could probably do, the gospel of God. That is the good news that belongs to God. He is the one who gives it because it belongs to him. And the good news is that Jesus has come to pay for our sins, to save us and transform us. That good news belongs to God. He is the one who sends Jesus. And so what we find is Paul saying that a Christian is someone who is loved by God. And how does God love us? Well, whatever else it means, it means that he sends his own son, Jesus, to come and be our Savior. And Paul goes on to tell us three things about this Jesus who comes to be our Savior that help us understand how we're going to live our lives as Christian men and women. And he does so first in verses 1 and 2 by pointing out that Jesus is a Savior that has been promised to us from eternity past. And he says in verse 2 that this gospel of God, that he's been called by Jesus to, uh, to go and proclaim, has been promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus, the means by which we can be saved from our sinful lives and set apart from God for God ourselves, this Jesus has been promised he would come and be our saviour from 
millennia past, from, from the earliest days of creation. And if we were to go back into Genesis, we would read God's words to Adam and Eve, our first parents. When Adam and Eve sin, God says to them, even at that point, just when sin has entered the world, I already have a plan in place to bring about the end of sin and restoration for your children. He says that to Eve. I'm going to send one of your children who will crush Satan, the serpent's head who tempted you into sin, who will put all of this right. One of your children's going to do this. And Paul is saying that all the way from Adam and Eve through the Old Testament, God has been promising again and again and again good news. A news that is better than anything we could ever have dreamt of, an end to our sin in Jesus Christ. And there's a couple of things that we need to notice about that that will change the way we see ourselves and the way we see the world and the way we see God. And the first is that God has promised to address our problem of sin before we were ever born. Now think about what that means for you for a minute. If you've trusted in Christ for your salvation, God has promised He will deal with that problem of sin in Jesus before you were born, before you had ever done or said or thought anything, God's commitment to you was before anything you had done. But God could see it all. He knew it would be, and yet He sent Jesus anyway. And so we have reason for great confidence in our salvation. Because God committed to save us before we had committed our first sin. It should give us a tremendous sense of encouragement in our life with God that He will never leave or forsake me because He saw all of that and yet committed Himself to save me anyway. And to know that transforming love of God that tells us that whatever our lives are like, God will stick by us because He committed to do so from eternity past. It gives us a sense that He will never leave us. So we don't need to worry when we fail, when we struggle with sin in, a, in an ongoing way. Because God knew. So we don't need to flee God's presence. The first thing we do when we give in to temptation and sin is quickly come back to God and confess it and have it done and dealt with so that we can move on and grow in our relationship with God. That's the confidence that God wants us to have as His children. So that as we live out our lives, we can be spent focusing not on trying to balance out the sins that we commit, because we never can. We know that. It means that we can live out our lives focusing on living for God, on loving Him and seeking to serve Him with every ounce of our strength, because we don't need to try and save ourselves. It was all done beforehand in Christ. It has all been promised in the prophets, fulfilled in Jesus, accomplished completely in Him. And God constantly spends His time pouring out His love into our lives, constantly um, renovating our lives, changing us, shaping us in light of that forgiveness that we already have in Jesus. And so we have, can have confidence in our life with God that He already has us. He already holds us. So we don't need to fear rege being rejected by Him. That changes people, doesn't it? 
When you think about people, maybe in your own experience, who live in a relationship that constantly fear rejection, what is that person's life like? It's lived constantly trying to curry favor with the the other person so that you won't reject me, you won't forsake me. It's lived constantly anxious, constantly fretting, constantly worried that maybe today I'll do something and, and I won't be loved anymore. They're constantly trying to please all the time. And that's not what God wants. God doesn't want us spending our days constantly trying to please Him because we're fearful He might turn away. God wants us to live serving Him out of a sense of joy that we're doing what He wants us to do, what He's trying to accomplish in the world and in our lives. It's what we've heard in David's uh, psalm already at the beginning of our service in Psalm 16. David loves the Lord and he fails all the time. He struggles with sin constantly and yet, David's joy is found in that he's living for the Lord. Despite all his failures, he's completely confident God won't reject him because God has committed himself to David beforehand, before David was even born. And so David lives with a sense of joy, knowing that I'm secure in his hands so I can live with complete freedom for him and for his purposes. God's dealing with sin offers us salvation as a gift that is not contingent on how well we do. And so we can live with joy because God has promised to save us. We find um, also that God um, sends Jesus, not just um, that he promises to send him, that he finally sends him to be king over us in verses 3 and 4. This is the second thing that Paul uh, comments on that defines his life. He is completely confident in his salvation. It doesn't rest on him, it rests in God because it's been promised beforehand. But we find now that this good news promised beforehand concerning God's son, Jesus, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. We find that Jesus is king over us to lead us and guide us in our lives. Now this is another element of the human experience that I think we all know and understand. We sometimes struggle when we look at our leaders. There's been much reflection on Donald Trump and and so on, as you can understand. There is a constant reflection in the news at the moment about Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon and the kind of people they are, their integrity, their commitment, their compassion, whatever it might be, and what that means about them as a leader. And if they don't measure up, we resent their leadership. We don't want them. But at no point do we ever feel that we don't need leaders. That that never really enters into the equation, does it? We recognize we need someone in government to guide us, to make decisions for the nation because we can't just let everyone do what they want to do. The nation will destroy itself in hours if that was the case. We need a leader over us. And so it is all the way through Scripture we find that there is a king appointed to rule over God's people. And in the Old Testament, that was one of David's line. It began with 
Saul, who was replaced by David, Saul was not an adequate king. And David's family were promised that they would always have one of their line on the throne in Israel forever. But we find they fail. And in the end, we find that Jesus comes to be the eternal uh, Davidic king on the throne. He was descended from David according to the flesh, Paul says. He's saying that this king, firstly, isn't some new and novel king, that we haven't come up with some new religion, some new faith. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. This is in line with all the Old Testament has to say. So we're not coming up with something new. This is the the right appointed king according to the promises of the prophets in the Old Testament. And so in in a human sense, there is an expectation that Jesus is right to rule over us. And in with the, the Old Testament um, prophecy and statements about what the, the king would be, if we were to read Micah or Isaiah, there is an assumption that he will rule over all the earth and all the nations of the earth will flock to him. Now, we might sit here and say we're very glad that Donald Trump wasn't our prime minister or president or king or anything else. We're grateful that we don't have him ruling over us. We tend to do that, don't we? We don't like Macron or we don't like Merkel or we don't like, you know, we don't like our own leaders. but, But quite often we're grateful that we don't have them, those other people. But that's not the Old Testament image at all. The Old Testament image is there's this amazing king in Jerusalem and we all want to go and be his subjects because he rules with complete fairness and impartiality. He rules with complete um, assurance and certainty. He always does the right thing. He is a righteous and a perfect king. And Paul says, this is Jesus. Jesus is this king. But he also says in verse 4 that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying he's not just the right king, humanly speaking. He's the right king according to his divinity, that he is God in the flesh. And there is no greater testimony to that to prove this than the fact that he died on the cross for the sins of other people and then was raised to life again. He paid for all of those sins, and once they were all paid for, there is, in a sense, nothing to keep him dead. And so, because he is the source of life, he rises to new life again. And this is testified to by the Holy Spirit. In your life, Paul is saying, and in my life, as we realize who Jesus is, his Spirit bears witness to that and confirms that he is, in fact, God, our rightful King, the one who created us, who made us, and has now saved us. And so we respond to him in a way that we want him to be our King. We struggle, we we fail to submit ourselves to him, but we want him to be our King. We don't want to fail him. We want to to live in uh, in obedience to him and in service to him because there's something in us that, that resonates with him being over our lives. And so as we are transformed by God's Holy Spirit, so we recognize that Jesus is Christ our Lord, the the one who rules over us. And so we find that Jesus makes himself known to us personally as our King, not just according to um, the flesh, humanly speaking 
but in terms of his uh, rulership as God and king over us. And this should give us great confidence, not just in our life with the Lord, but in our life with one another. Because we are all under the rulership of Christ. So it doesn't matter if we have uh, Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or Angela Merkel as the, the ruler of our country. It doesn't matter if we have this person as the pastor of our church or this person. Or if you have no pastor over your church or you have multiple pastors in your church. It makes no real difference. We are all one as Christians under the rulership of Jesus Paul is saying to the church in Rome, I'm desperate to come and see you. I can't wait to come and labor with you for your good, for your blessing. And it never occurred to Paul there would be any problem with that. That there would be resentful elders in the church at Rome or anything like that. Who's this Paul coming in and and getting involved? It never seemed to occur to him. Because we're all one, aren't we? We're all laboring for the same goal. God is our king. All of us. Christ is our king. And so... Because we are all saved under the, um, the, the, the cross of Christ and are all under his rule in our lives, we find that he intends to lead us all together. Now, all our churches might look a little bit different, and yet they're all being led to the same end, to the glory of God in his worship and in uh, encouraging one another as disciples and in testifying to him in the world so that other people might become Christians and become part of the kingdom of God, his church, his royal rule. And so we find that we are all united together. And so we should have great confidence in our life together that we can pour our effort and our, our time into one another's lives to build each other up because we're all laboring to the same goal. But it also means that we have a king over us who protects us. That's what a king does. You place your um, confidence in him, you give yourself to his rule, and he rules your life, but in so doing protects you in two ways. He leads you because he can see the big picture about where we're all going in a way that we can't. And so he leads us and calls us to trust in him when we can't see why we're going this way, why we're doing that thing, he's the one who knows, who has the big picture and understands. And so he protects us and calls us to be obedient to him altogether so that we go the right way and do the right thing. But he also protects us in um, fighting off our enemies on our behalf. And so we find that he protects us from Satan constantly as uh, we seek to go through this life. He enables us to, with, um, to, to withstand temptation. He enables us to go into the world and spread the gospel when Satan would have us not do so. He protects us in that way. And we find Jesus talking about that in uh, Matthew's gospel that we touched on in our prayer meeting over this past week, that Jesus comes and plunders Satan's home, as it were. He binds Satan so Satan can't stop Jesus carrying away people from the kingdom of darkness into Jesus' kingdom. And so we find Jesus comes as our king, as we are obedient to him, and he protects us as we go out into the world to live for him. He protects us by helping us to withstand temptation, and he protects us by binding us together as a church so that we're stronger as one family. He protects us by giving us his spirit and his word so that we can know him and love him and serve him. 
It gives us great confidence that we're all heading in the same direction, that we're all pulling together. And this is never more important than at this time when we can't meet together. Church life isn't the way it normally is. And we sometimes wonder when all this is going to end. What are we doing? Where is the church going? Well, we're all pulling together. We're supporting one another, phoning each other, texting each other, emailing one another, doing whatever we can to build up our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and we pray for one another. And we pray for our sister churches in Livingston and West Lothian and in the world beyond. We find that Jesus comes as our King and that will define how we behave in our worship, in our discipleship together, in our witness in the world. And we find lastly, it's not just that Jesus has promised to us that will shape us or that he is King over us, but that he is glorified by us we find in verses 5 and 6. Paul says that this Jesus, who is our King, is Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, he's talking in part about himself. He's saying that he has been saved by Christ and made an apostle by Jesus to help you to bring about your obedience in your faith so that Christ might be glorified for the sake of his name among the nations. So that the world might look at your church, see your faithfulness and give glory to God for what a great people you are. Ultimately, that the nations will become Christians, will be saved by Christ also, and will glorify God for what he's done in their lives, including you who are called in Rome to belong to Christ Jesus. We find that Jesus, as he pours his grace into our lives, as he saves us and he transforms us, is glorified by that act. Because how powerful a God must he be in order to change people who are completely saturated by sin. This is uh, something that we can see um, in our lives when, when we know people who have done amazing things. We glorify them, don't we? These great people who've transformed the world, who've led nations, who've invented amazing things, who have accomplished amazing feats, we glorify them because they are the kind of people who have done amazing things. So they must be amazing. When we think about the people who you know, have invented great um, things like the, the, the steam engine or have invented um, space travel or have come up with amazing um, vaccines for viruses or medical procedures or who have led their country well. We can think of Neil Armstrong and Winston Churchill and Marie Curie and, and um, Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, we can think of these people. We glorify them because they have done great things. And it is exactly the same here. The, the handiwork of Jesus testifies to his amazing power, insight, creativity. And we are his handiwork. We've been transformed by Jesus. We are the recipients of his grace, the, the, the people who he has raised from death to life. And when people look at us, they see his amazing work and so glorify him, are transformed by him. And it brings about faith in the nations when they see that we have been changed. This is why we share our testimony, isn't it? This is why we talk about our faith, 
because we recognize when we talk about our faith, people see what God has done in our lives and recognize if, I can, if He can change them, He can change me. And so it is with our lives in our mission. It should give us confidence in our mission for God that as we share the love of God with other people, as we make them aware of His handiwork, so He brings transformation in their lives as they're made aware of just how awesome a God this is. Paul says to the believers in Rome at the beginning of this amazing letter, I want you to know three things about who Jesus is because it defines me as a Christian man and it defines you in the church at Rome and it defines us today. The first is that Jesus has been promised to us who believe. That he has promised to come and be our saviour. There is no question about it. And so we can have confidence in our faith that God will never leave us. That makes us a rooted, a grounded, a well-founded people that don't need to constantly run about in anxiety that maybe God will leave me today or tomorrow. Jesus is promised to come and be king over us, to lead us and guide us, but also to protect us, that we don't need to fear all of the stuff going on in the world around us that threatens to to overwhelm us, because Jesus fights for us on our side. He upholds us, He strengthens us, and He equips us. We find that Jesus is glorified in our uh, lives as Christian men and women. It doesn't all rest on how well we do as Christian men and women, although certainly if we are faithful and we glorify God, that is great glory given to God and will result, I have no doubt, in great good in the world. But it rests in the simple fact that Jesus has already saved you and transformed you. You, simply by existing as a Christian, testify to the glory, the power, the majesty, and the authority of Jesus. All of these things should shape us as Christian men and women, should give us great confidence in our worship, in our discipleship, and in our witness to the Lord. Paul wants us to be confident, but confident in Christ. We are, like Paul, slaves of Jesus Christ, owned lock, stock, and barrel by him. But this is not some harsh, oppressive ownership. It is the root and foundation of our joy because we can be completely confident. Whatever we face this year, we can be completely confident in him. So let's come together in prayer and ask that Christ would bless us with this knowledge that he has been promised to us never to be taken from us. He is our King to rule, guide, and protect us. And He ultimately is glorified in each one of us. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for these simple opening words as Paul gives testimony to who He is, gives His credentials as they they were, as it were. Lord God, we thank you that these are also, in a way, our credentials. They speak of our life, that we have been set apart by Christ, saved, transformed, and so now can live in complete confidence in Him. Lord God, have us confident in Him that whatever we face, whether difficulty or whether great times of joy and satisfaction, whether times of persecution or times of great triumph, Lord God, have us do so in confidence. 
for we are your people, set apart and called for your glory. And Lord God, we give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue now as we close out our service to glorify God in song. And we'll do so as the band lead us, singing about this amazing transformation that we have in Jesus, this great confidence we have in him. This is amazing grace.